This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delance. Imagine that you're 18 again and that you have just arrived at the first lecture of your university course in your chosen field of study, X. Like any good introductory lecture, this one is likely to start with a question and a definition. It might go something like this. Well, what is X? X is a discipline concerned with the study of Y. This could work for many examples of X, but there is one field that pretty much cringes at the very question. Art. What is art? Is art a practice? Is it a discipline? Is it a field of study? Is it a process? An act? Does art create knowledge the way that other disciplines do? How does art compare with other disciplines? The past decades have seen concerted efforts to frame artistic research as a bona fide academic discipline within the university system, but such arguments haven't necessarily convinced or even reached artists themselves. So, is art a discipline? A new book by Alana Yelnik, Between Discipline and a Hard Place, The Valley of Contemporary Art, makes an impassioned argument for treating art as a discipline in its own right and proposes a range of protocols for solidifying and expanding art's role in society. Alana Yelenek is an artist and a researcher at the School of Creative Arts at the University of Hertfordshire, and I'm very happy to say that she joins me now to discuss her new book. Welcome to the show, Alana. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Alana for a couple of reasons. Um, The first is the fact that you ask an incredibly important question that I think is very often overlooked in the practice of art and in the theorizations of art. And the second, which I offer more as a disclosure and and an excuse, is that your topic lies incredibly close to my own current PhD research. So I will do my best to not ask you too, too many leading questions and not to insert myself too heavily into your narrative. But before we get into any of those details, I'd like to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about how you got to the question of discipline and how your practice as an artist and as a researcher has led you to the position that you ended up taking. Yes, I I went to art school straight after school, so I was 18. uh, And at art school, I also uh, took philosophy just because I was interested in philosophy and the art school system was breaking down and becoming part of university. So it became an opportunity that I could take up was to do um, 
philosophy in the analytic tradition and also in the continental tradition. So even from the very beginning, I was interested in art and thinking. (laughs) Um, And then I uh, left Australia. I emigrated um, and settled in London and was a practicing artist. And I started a gallery and I started an arts organization. And I lived the life of a London-based artist. And eventually, uh, in 2000, I ended up working at Tate Modern uh, as part of the first team ever to work at Tate Modern. So I was part of a very, not not the very, very first people who started it, but the next branching out of the people who were putting the program together, the education and um, outreach and interpretation program. Uh, I was part of that team, that early team, before it had even opened. So you're talking about a moment in the UK where this kind of large-scale encounter between contemporary art and its public is pretty much uncharted territory. More than just uncharted, it was we had license. This is entirely the reason why I am where I am today in the sense that I joined the team as one of the few outsiders. Uh, Most of the other people had worked either at Tate Britain or within education and interpretation before, but I, I was brought in for my enthusiasm for a different way of talking about art and my commitment to to global uh, art history or world art history, however you're going to call it, rather than a Eurocentric or NATO-specific art history. That those were the values of Tate Modern Mark, Mark I. This is very important because Tate Modern started as an extremely idealistic museum of contemporary modern and contemporary art for the 21st century. And everybody working on it spent a lot of time thinking about what would be um, the perfect museum, what would be the right museum, not perfect, the right museum for the 21st century, what would we like to see in it. Um, So I joined as part of this idealistic team and I would say the first year, year and a half of Tate Modern actually was our vision for an inclusive, um, decentered, non-hierarchical vision of the art world. And we, we who started it did not expect it to be successful. This is what people really, really can't understand when they see how successful it was. <laughs> it's, early two, it's early 2000s and there's, you know, there's times of optimism and things are happening and you, you, you were right in the middle of it. Absolutely. How, how have things progressed since? Well, this is so um, quite quickly things soured. And when I say quickly, I mean like a year and a half to two years later. And, it was, and I wanted to know... Why? What happened? What happened to the vision of Tate Modern for it to become led by money again, for it to no longer be as inclusive, for it to be quite conservative? What what happened to make all these people with a vision capitulate to the status quo? Mm. So I uh, went in 2004 to do my PhD, basically to look at Tate Modern as a case study for negative impact of neoliberalism and neoliberal policies for the arts on artistic and curatorial vision. Oh my, well, that's one way to make oneself popular. (laughs) You've described just now an experience that has changed your mind completely about the way you approach the museum. And I know from reading your current book that there's a couple of these kind of about turns that that happen in your practice and in your research, even before we get into disciplinarity. So firstly, to say uh, that between discipline and a hard place, um, the value of contemporary art, which is the name of uh, this book, follows on from arguments made in my first book, um, which 
uh, was published in 2013 um, called This Is Not Art, Activism and Other Not Art. Um, and it develops some of that thinking um, more. Um, and actually, I am going to say also that This Is Not Art was um, the antithesis of my doctoral thesis. Basically what happened um, <laughs> is I wrote my thesis, as I told you, in um, in response to this experience of Tate Modern. And, and you know, I'd had up until that point a 10, 15-year career living in London, being an artist in the 90s. Then I am awarded my PhD and I get my first postdoc in Cambridge at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge. And that experience of thinking with archaeologists and anthropologists made me rethink my thesis that I had recently completed, and I decided I was quite wrong. <laughs> so this is not art. My first book is rethinking some of those assumptions, because like, like many artists living in London, um, and I think this is a very European thing and not an American thing, but like many artists, I was very influenced by the Frankfurt School. I uh, had framed art and what art does in I'm going to say traditional, but you know, new left Marxist thinking um, about antagonism or agonism. And it was only when I was exposed to the kinds of thinking that coexist with art and art theory and the types of theories that we tend to rely on. Um, and when I say coexist, I mean they also read Foucault. You know, they also read <laughs> Rancière. They read similar people to us, but they are coming from a different tradition. And that made me understand disciplines because we have hmm. different interpretations of theory and we also therefore have a different standpoint, a different worldview as a consequence. So I, I experienced for the first time people who thought about similar things to me but thought about them very, very differently, which then made me realise how disciplined, as in how, how specific my thinking had been and how very, very art it was. Well, here we are between discipline and a hard place already. And I think the difficulty of untangling what you just, just described, Anna, is clear from um, the tone of the book, which reads at some points as, as an impassioned manifesto. And one of the things I love about it, what you're writing, is that it once in a while has this beautiful one-liner. And right at the beginning of the book, you start by saying, art could be anything, but it isn't. So I think maybe this is a good way to approach the question of art's disciplinarity. I think art is understood in a, in a, in a strange way. Uh, cause on the one hand, practicing artists, artists ourselves tend to deny that art is anything special. So there's, there's a couple of whole big arguments in the world, which is that everybody is an artist and that's all fine and good. I like the sentiment of that, the inclusion of that. Um, the problem is that for those of us who went to art school for three years, three or four years, and went on to master's, it kind of denies the fact that all the artists who are household names are the ones you see, uh, you know, in your local museum, or gallery, or biennales, or all of those artists have been trained. So it is firstly mm. not true that everyone's an artist in the sense that everybody <laughs> becomes an artist as part of the historical record, for want of a better word. But also, it's not like we didn't learn anything <laughs> in all that time at art school or university. <laughs> there is something we learned and there is something as somebody who teaches undergraduates and graduates, postgraduate students, there is something we teach. There is a way of thinking and there is a way of seeing that we teach. Um, it's assumed nowadays that people have the skills, but we also 
teach skills to some extent. There is this, there's a lot of confusion both within the art world and externally about what art actually is. Like, is it something that anybody can do because you in a preschool or nursery school play with paint? Is that art? I say that's absolutely not art. That's playing with paint. It's mark making. <laughs> um, you know, is what a Sunday painter does art? I again say that is not art. That is playing with paint. Mm. So what is it that distinguishes between uh, the hobbyist or the child um, or the dog <laughs> or all those other things, all those other creatures that are said to make art um, and what an artist does having gone through university or art school for four years or more? We're, there is something different to what we're doing. And in thinking about that and not believing um, the hype that um, everybody's an artist, which has got lovely democratic intention that everybody could be an artist, but the fact is not everybody is, meaning not everybody is collected, not everybody uh, is supported. Um, there is a di uh, And um, for us to really look at that, are we going to say that it's just simply unfair that some people are and some people aren't, or is there some merit to a system that enables some types of practice to be valued and other types of practice to be for yourself. Yeah, that's that's definitely a quandary that the the art world hasn't quite solved yet. No, but I have. <laughs> let's 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 try to work through that in the next half an hour or so. Maybe. <laughs> no, the reason why I say it, I know I understand. I was being naughty, so I'm disentangling a lot of things from uh, the structures that are to look at the true value of what's going on. And the reason to disentangle those two things is because if the art world is is sustained by basically a lie, and the lie is that everybody is an artist and only those with great talent are the ones that are being sold for mm. lots of money, and yet if we look who are those people, they are almost invariably white men living in particular cities or who have moved to particular mm -hmm. cities, then, then it's – it becomes basically the usual story of entrenched uh, racism and sexism, which the art world is perpetuating. Now, I know that artists generally do not believe in maintaining a racist and sexist world and rail against this, but then we have to look at what are we doing? What are, what are the underpinning hmm. myths of art production today within an art world? Yeah. I would propose possibly that there was another lie counteracting that that lie, which you you should do also touch on in the book, which is that kind of myth of the artist as as a genius, as this kind of romantic prophet or or a shaman, yeah, which very conveniently manages to deal with the disparities and outcomes with the fact that, as you cite from Gregory Schillette, ninety nine percent of the artists practicing today just support the one percent who who are successful, who are making a living from what they're doing. So we, we're kind of in this perfect storm of everybody's an artist, everybody is, a, is creative, this kind of neoliberal opening of all these frameworks. Um, and discipline, the idea of a discipline, is, is your solution. I think it's fair to say that, that artists don't like the idea of discipline. The fact that this, this, this notion of disciplinarity is more often than not completely rejected by by theorists and and quite often educators. One yeah. of my favorite examples of this is um, Charles Escher's 
very brief essay from about 10 years ago in which he praises the idea of a disciplinarity as a as a method for preparing artists to change the world a disciplinarity being this notion that if we don't stick to any particular kind of canon any particular set of skills and knowledges that will somehow be in a better place than than those who train to do a very particular kind of thing okay so the charles escher view is just one in a long 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 line of this um, and it's all about the misguided notion, I would say, of de- democratizing um, creativity, which is, is all very laudable. Um, and it begins actually in the 19th century. It's a very romantic idea. And I would say the origins of this come out of a genuine understanding that um, art was something that you needed resources to do. Um, so, so firstly, that everybody should be an artist in that everybody should have access to the resources. So people forget that in the 1840s, for example, there was a working class movement to read the classics because it was understood that there was merit in the classics and, and that the working classes had been denied access to the best as it was, as it was understood in those, time, in, in those times um, and that this was to their disadvantage. So this is a long, long idea about democratizing access to creativity, to thought, to and then later to expression themselves. So, so later from the 1960s onwards, it becomes uh, about democratizing who gets to speak. This is all good and laudable, and I'm absolutely not against this. This is not the point. But my argument is that what's happened is that the usual suspects are the ones that we get that get heard anyway. It's the usual suspects, meaning the middle class white men and a few middle class white women, and then a very tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people who aren't either category getting through as well. If we look at that, then we see that it's not true that every that this great democratic project has been successful. So it's about looking carefully at this. Uh, and as I say, for me, the, the anti-discipline thing, um, it, first, there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding around this, but again, it comes from a, a good place, uh, the misunderstanding. It comes from a place of expansiveness and uh, democratizing. So it's looking at who's, who, what kind of a curriculum is the type of curriculum. You know, the curriculum has been uh, very white male privileged. Um, let's look at all the various other voices that have created knowledge, not just the Enlightenment version of knowledge. So it's all come from a laudable place, which is looking at pluralism in the round and not just privileging one small, small group of people. But the answer has been to basically take away the specific learning of artists and expertise as well in general. So they're, they're the countervailing aspect to the democratization of knowledge has been to take away the value from from experts to say that experts are just one of many kinds of people and there's no inherent difference between the view of somebody who's studied for 20 years and somebody who has just read wikipedia that there is no inherent difference in the views of those two people um, so generally, I'm actually looking at the role of experts and artists are one of those types of experts. And so this is all tied into a much larger argument around democracy and the role of expertise within a democracy. There's also the aspect that none of these guys, Charles Escher included, have any, I'm going to argue, but definitely Foucault doesn't, have or Rancière, have any awareness of 
models and systems and societies outside of the usual ones that the West thinks of. So in learning anthropology, I have understood that that there are societies well beyond my imagination (laughs) and that I have learned as well that all sorts of societies from all over the world and deep into the past, ones that in our racist imaginary we have dismissed as primitive or savage, that education and training and expertise exists in all societies, including the ones that we dismissed as primitive and savage. And being an artist is one of those expertise, as well as being a scientist and being a mathematician and being a historian. These disciplines may not have been recognised by um, our colonial forebears, but they are history, art, science, maths in their own right in the the terms of that society. So for me, it's actually an artifact of a kind of racist primitivism that we imagine that humans exist without knowledge and without expertise, and that that's an ideal we should even be going for. All right. So we have a knowledge tradition, we have ideas of complexity, we have the notions of expertise, and I think it would be good for us to dwell a little bit on what I think the central point of the book is, which is your proposal that It should be mostly, if not solely, the artist who defines what it is that art is as a discipline. And you point out that, of course, in other disciplines, it is practitioners who have that say. Scientists define what it is that science is. Anthropologists would define what anthropology is, and so on and so on. But that doesn't seem to really stick, as we just discussed, in in art. Why do you think it is that art has committed this kind of weird sacrifice? (laughs) Um, So firstly, I would say that there's actually instances, many instances of science or anthropology or history being used in the service of um, uh, capitalism or profit-making or companies or company profits. So it's not that we are the only ones who um, have capitulated to working with capital, (laughs) but the difference is that compared to most other knowledge-forming disciplines, we have abdicated the responsibility for self-definition. So what I do know is that, well, all the other disciplines that I have encountered do have crises of confidence. So anthropologists themselves, for instance, go through conferences where they're going, where they're thinking about well, what what is anthropology? What's the point of anthropology? Have we just been taken over by the market? What you know? Are we are we doing anything radical? Are we doing anything? Because they too, like artists, want to do something radical and good and important uh, in the world, and they they also worry about whether uh, they're simply servicing the status quo or doing something positive. The difference between and the reason why I'm I um, am proposing disciplinarity as a way of thinking about art practice is because they have a sense outside of the market, of themselves outside of the market, so that whether or not an individual anthropologist wants to do something which is going to be used by a mining corporation and wants to you know, work with a local indigenous people in order to further that mining corporation's interests in their tribal lands you know, which is one of the ways that anthropology is used to service neoliberal or capitalism. What they have is inside of themselves, inside the discipline themselves, the anthropologists themselves have a way of navigating that. They have a way of they have a way of understanding what they do in addition to how it serves and services the market. And that's 
that aspect is what artists have lost. And we've lost that because we lost, basically, my argument is, we used to have that when we had a sense of ourselves as the avant-garde. So when artists used to believe that we were leaders <laughs> of culture, leading from the front, the avant-garde, you know, and it was in militaristic terms that we were at the front of some kind of a war or in progress. Now that most artists don't believe that today. We kind of got rid of that for its um, dodginess, for its romantic appeal. We, we just simply got rid of all of that way of thinking uh, at some point in the late 20th century. But we didn't replace it with anything. And my argument is that the values of the market have crept in instead and that it, that disciplinarity is a useful, not bulwark, but a way of negotiating in yourself as a discipline with the pressures and seductions of, of the market, of capitalism. Let's, let's get into the discipline proper now. What are the key features of art as a discipline? Because one of the things that we need to do now, having got into this disciplinary game is we have to put some boundaries around what it is that's happening. You, you mentioned earlier that discipline can be defined by things like the content of the curriculum and, and an understanding of the training that artists undergo. But this is a much more wide-ranging project that, that actually touches on quite a fundamental question of what it is that art produces as a knowledge-making discipline how it interacts with other disciplines. How, so how do we start this, this project of rethinking almost from scratch, I would, I would suggest, yeah, <laughs> this behemoth of, of the art world and, and the many, many artists and individuals working in it? Okay, so um, this is going to sound possibly like a cop-out, but it really isn't. It's because I, I don't believe in, as in I don't, uh, my value system is not one which I where I would be some godlike creature and I would give a diktat on from on high and say this is art and this is the boundary of art and all things beyond is not art. That's that's not what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do is is indicate to you and the listener um, how it is already operating as a discipline, but we've just been using the wrong words. <laughs> we just have misidentified what's going on. Again, in working closely with anthropologists and archaeologists, what I saw, um, but also having the framework suddenly of anthropology to think about this, what I saw is that all disciplines that are knowledge-forming, that are orientated towards knowledge and truth, and these are very contested words I know within the art world and we'll have to deal with them in a different question, mm. <laughs> all of them work similarly. Um, and again, across the world and in different societies, they work similarly. So what, what we all do is we have ancestors, so to speak. <laughs> we have the people who go before us that we cite, that we know about. So all, every single discipline works this way. You consciously know what generations before you have contributed to that way of thinking. And all everybody uh, in that discipline is then looking to add to that story. So as I say, it's it, it, each discipline, they, are, they have the uh, kind of the established facts or whatever you're going to call them. They're not the canon, the, the stories. If we're going kind of more um, globally and outside of the West, so it's no longer canon, we're no longer talking um, facts, but we're talking about the stories of our ancestors. And your contribution is not – in no society is it simply replicating it. No society are we simply replicating uh, what our forefathers did. 
in all societies, we're trying to contribute to that within the values of that society. And each discipline does that. So it's about working out what your values are, who who your ancestral forefathers and foremothers are, and then working out what your contribution is within that. And that gets interesting if we move into the idea of knowledge production, which is, is something that art has been happy to be to be branded with and happy to take on as a, as a question for you know, probably the last 10, 20 years, but remains contested. Yeah. But you proposed a range of mechanism in which this disciplinary treatment kind of insulates art from some of the pitfalls of neoliberalism. So it's, it kind of finds ways to ensure quality, to provide better ways of interpreting what it is that's happening. It also situates art against other disciplines. So could you maybe speak a little bit about how you see this redefining some of the interactions that we are encountering right now? I, I go by way of comparison because it's uh, it's just easier because you can see it more clearly um, outside of art. But I, I would argue that this is, if artists understand what we do in these terms, then we too can do this kind of thing. So for example, any of, of the other disciplines, so say medicine, uh, medical research, or say archaeology, rogue elements can emerge. And when I say rogue elements, I mean people who um, have the title of medical researcher or have the title of archaeologist um, who are doing, who think that they're doing or are ostensibly doing research, produce a paper which is then refuted later by other doctors or other archaeologists. So, for instance, um, in the case of uh, medical research, there was Andrew Wakefield's uh, research done on MMR, which is a vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, and he decided, having looked at six children, that there was a link between M- the MMR vaccine and autism. And for some reason, which is really inexplicable, The Lancet actually published this, even though it was very obviously substandard research. The reason it was substandard is because you you can't publish research on six people. Uh, It's just simply numerically impossible unless you're doing case study. But in terms of uh, qualitative data, it's just simply not enough people to come to any kind of conclusion because they could all be anomalies. Um, And yet it was published. So this person, Andrew Wakefield, is actually a doctor. He did conduct some kind of research, but it wasn't good enough. It didn't pass the standards of medicine. Uh, And yet somehow it got published and later doctors came and had a look at his method uh, and said, this is substandard. His conclusions can't possibly be valid or validated at least. So we need to do more research and more research Um, was conducted and it was proved that there is absolutely zero link between the MMR vaccine and autism, zero, no evidence for it. And yet Andrew Wakefield has a huge career as an anti-vaxxer for the MMR and, you know, most of the internet, if you ever look up MMR, that so-called truth is out there as true and not the actual medical research um, refuting the substance of it. So, Um, This is what disciplines do. They navigate other realities with their own approaches and value systems and processes for what is good and what isn't good. So both what is 
medicine and what isn't medicine. So we want to know that. We want to know that the doctor who is treating us actually went through a medical education and is not a charlatan. All of us concur that we would prefer to see an actual doctor and not one that uh, pretends to have a degree if we are going through, you know, Western um, medicine um, and we're trusting our lives to that. Uh, and then there are processes for finding quality within medical research. So what counts as actual knowledge and what is just a hunch, you know, uh, Andrew Wakefield um, had a hunch. It proved incorrect. He falsified the evidence, but it proved incorrect. So every system of knowledge has a way of correcting overall, like there are individual rogues, but overall there is a system for correcting whether something is actually true or just an individual hunch. And that is the value of disciplinary thinking. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Well, as someone who originally trained in science, I do find this idea of falsifiability and this preparing ideals incredibly appealing. But I wonder how you see this playing out in art in which the idea of art as a discipline and art as a discipline that produces knowledge of a particular type remains an open question. I mean, could we perhaps find a disciplinary and discipline system that just does away with all bad art? <laughs> yes. Um, I'm, I'm not being fascistic in this. I'm not saying that everybody has to adhere to truth. They don't, not everybody even has to have truth as a value. I'm not even saying that. So I'm not saying we need to get rid of all bad art. I'm really not saying that. So I'm not, I'm not talking about getting rid of all other forms of creating commodities, let's say. So I'm not talking about art as commodities. If artists want to go off or if people want to go off and make commodities for a market, be they good art or bad art, fine, get, get on with it. Just as if somebody wants to create uh, snake oil to sell, and claim that it's got healing properties, you can get on with it, but you don't get to call it medicine. So my point is that we need a way of categorizing things that are that have values in addition to simply that which sells. So medicine needs to have medicinal value and needs to do more good than harm for it to be called medicine, or at least for it to be distributed as medicine. Otherwise it's a poison or otherwise it's snake oil. Art, I would say, for art to be something in addition to simply a commodity has to do something in addition to simply being a commodity circulating. So I'm not saying, you know, get rid of all other forms of objects, <laughs> all, all objects that aren't art. I'm just saying we need a way of valuing things that aren't simply commodities. We need to have ways of valuing art as art and the stuff that art only does as distinct from other types of elite commodities. Hmm. Well, to complicate it a little bit more, then I'm, I'm going to jump to art's relationship to other disciplines, because maybe that's that's also a way to, to help us understand the, the nuances of the definition that you are proposing. So you write about a series of kind of cliched almost collaborations between, say, art and science or art and law and you know, art and medicine. Yeah. And you, you refer to John Roberts, who I think quite rightly critiques quite a lot of those initiatives as 
placing art in a merely illustrative position in relationship to the partner disciplines. How do you imagine something that could be described as truly interdisciplinary, that is kind of communion of two different methods for creating knowledge? Well, what I can say is that um, at my university, University of Hertfordshire, we're starting an art sci lab exactly to look at this question because there has been uh, so little attention paid to the quality of the art. So there's a lot of money for art illustrating science, whether it's, you know, physics, medicine, astronomy, or, or climate change. You know, there's been some lovely commissions where artists illustrate climate change, but they're merely illustrating it. They're not creating new knowledge. So if, as I do, I value art as nuancing knowledge, existing knowledge, or creating uh, knowledge in its own right, or creating complexity of what we already know, then artists have to understand what we do much more convincingly is kind of what I'm saying. So for an artist to have a collaboration as an equal with somebody who isn't an artist, be it a psychologist, a physicist, a climate scientist, an ecologist, or a member of the public, we need to own what it is that we do and understand what we do as valuable uh, and as a contribution. We're not merely a cipher. We're not speaking some you know, visual language that is universal. That has been debunked a long time ago. We, have, we are bringing to the partnership a way of thinking and a way of seeing and a history of of doing that, which is specific. And if we are going to do us, do, do even any kind of interdisciplinary or collaborative work justice, then we need to know that we're bringing tools to this partnership and that we are absolutely equals in it. We are not merely handmaidens. We are absolutely equal in any art, non-art collaboration. Where you've, where you've arrived at is pretty much the beginning of my PhD research. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I think the difficulty in thinking about it like this lies in the fact that those kind of collaborations require quite a lot of self-discipline in that kind of you know discipline and punish sense, and they they require rigor that is incredibly difficult to instill in an artistic practice that is still completely married to the idea of kind of freedom and indeed unknowing and just kind of playful experimentation, which. I understand you don't want to completely remove from artistic practices either. From my perspective, there's a solution, and that's clearly one of the requirements of interdisciplinary practice, is that art has a responsibility to develop expertises in its partner disciplines as well. Not necessarily that an artist working with climate change has to become a climate scientist, but they have to have the ability to one, understand what it is that climate science is really trying to say. Two, be able to articulate what it is that art can do to the climate scientist. And of course, it is also incumbent on the climate scientist to understand bits of aesthetics, understand what it is that art does, and so on and so on. I have a feeling that you would agree that that only throws back the responsibility back onto the artist, because if art hasn't been able to articulate in terms that other disciplines can understand what it is that art actually does and brings to these kind of collaborations, then it's at a little bit of a loss because it's been, you know, as you say, a handmaiden of, of this kind of fetishistic, just aesthetic production of, of you know, press releases. 
Oh, no, I have to say I 100% agree with you. Um, uh, it is beholden on the artist to um, get some of the core basic concepts and it's beholden on the scientist to understand that aesthetics has not equaled beauty. Aesthetics and beauty are not the same thing and we are not just beauticians of the world, um, uh, nor is it a formal exercise. So it's absolutely beholden on both parties to come at the collaboration knowing and not knowing, knowing what they know and also aware and open to what they don't know. Even broader, um, I've read some things about um, collaboration even among the sciences or interdisciplinary working um, among the sciences, which from an artist's perspective looks very similar. But I can assure you <laughs> that biology is not the same as chemistry, is not the same as physics or all the subgroups either. Um, and they have exactly the same problem. Uh, and there's a huge amount written from the 1970s onwards when interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary working first came about as a kind of um, self-conscious practice, that there's a huge amount written about the mediocrity of, of flabby thinking, um, basically, that if both uh, parties or however many parties are involved in this collaboration don't do the work of understanding each other to some extent and mapping the language that they share and that they don't share and mapping key concepts, then what they create is just rubbish. No, this is not even about art collaboration with non-artists. This is, this is what's written about you know chemists collaborating with biologists, that very, very thin work and basically rubbish is created unless you actually do that work in the first place. And that interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary working, interdisciplinary is better because then you're not staying in your silos, um, requires that work. It requires all of that work going in in the first place. But here, here is where we fail, I'm afraid, Alana, because doing the work is hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, page one of every textbook on interdisciplinary will tell you that you have to develop adequate expertise. And there is something very seductive about this idea of not knowing that that the artists have been equipped with for, for hundreds of years, but without necessarily condemning the artist into you know endless endless hours of Wikipedia research for the oh, next no, not Wikipedia. project. No, I know not I'm, Wikipedia, I'm being, I'm being completely facetious. This is the opposite <laughs> of what are we doing? It's the opposite of what you're advocating, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm talking about speaking to your collaborator. I'm, yeah. I, that's all I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you going mm. off and, you know, um, becoming an undergraduate in physics or whatever. I'm saying actually have that conversation. Talk to the person you're collaborating with. Don't assume you know. Well, in my research, I am talking a little bit about becoming an undergraduate in physics, but that's maybe because I was an undergraduate in physics myself before <laughs> I came to art. But that's that's my that's my own problem to solve. But I want to pick up on something that you mentioned mentioned earlier. Which you said that aesthetics and beauty are not the same thing, and you, you have a whole series of things that are not not the thing next to them. So you talk about ethics and morality and aesthetics not being ethics. What is the politics of this disciplinarity that, that you're talking about? So I wrote um, in particular the first book, uh, This Is Not Art, against instrumentalization of artistic practice by both the market and uh, at the time the new Labour government. So that kind of social amelioration, um, arguing that art needs to be something in addition. Um, not, so I'm not against the politics or the sentiment of um, attempting to create a better world. Uh, as I say, many, many other 
and, and in fact, to be honest, most academics I've ever met are trying to create a better world, even if they're failing. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, just go for the status quo and don't try to make radical change, but I'm saying that art has to be something in addition um, and that uh, how we define that is by looking into ourselves again and reminding ourselves of what it is that we uniquely do on earth. What is the actual value of an art practice in those terms? Hmm. Well, I find it quite intriguing about your model is that it leaves quite a lot of space for individual ethics and individual morality taking, taking some space. So I wonder whether you could speak about some principles that we might want to use. My favourite philosopher, <laughs> one of my favourite philosophers, I have a number, uh, is Emmanuel Levinas. Um, uh, because he is all about, um, and the, you know, the strap line for him is ethical engagements with the other as other. So we're not imagining that we understand another person. So we're not talking about otherness as in somebody who's from a different culture or a different background or age or whatever. We're talking about any other face, any other person on earth is different, profoundly different, radically different and unknowable in that difference. And that ethics has to come up, ha has to emerge from appreciating that difference, that difference from the self. Um, so my ethics um, is, is absolutely Levinasian. <laughs> um, and for me, um, having been, and this is really the big difference between my PhD and where I'm at now, the main radical shift that happened in my thinking was that I realized, and I mean realized, that the Frankfurt School and all the political way that I had understood art, art to be, the value of art, because I absolutely came from, you know, the radical left um, and that um, art has to do social good in a very specific political way, that I suddenly realised that that was unethical in this way. Um, and that is because for me, and that's what this chapter about ethics, not politics, is all about, is that politics, including the Marxist view, um, but actually I'm going to say every single kind of politics is inherently unethical and it's unethical in that Levinasian way because what it does is it creates types, you know, the working class, the upper class, uh, white people, black people, gay, whoever. This is, there is a type of people and in that creation of a type, you erase any difference between those people at all. And that to have ethics, we need to be alert at all times to the difference between us and not fantasize sameness because fantasizing sameness is a violence against that person's wholeness or against my, my person's wholeness. So for me, um, that's what this, that chapter is all about is arguing um, that artists uh, that I would like, so this one is <laughs> one, one of those clarion call chapters, um, that I would like artists to be aware that in um, espousing politics, um, they are also acting unethically if ethics is what they would like to be doing. And just to disentangle those two key concepts, because many artists would like to think themselves ethical, they'd like to, in their politics, but for me, if we need to attend, we need to look at mindfully uh, what is actually ethical and what is actually political. Um, and like I say, in that chapter, I'm arguing for, for ethics first, um, because ultimately, if we're looking in terms of types, 
we are we are creating violence in the in society around us and we are doing epistemic violence we're doing a kind of violence which perpetuates inequality because we're not attending to radical difference we're not attending to the individual uniqueness um, because we're so focused on the type um and that for me and this is all <laughs> it all actually does come together uh, again because i'm arguing throughout the book about the role the very specific role that art has in democracies because for me democracy is the paramount value and again what i mean by democracy is um the uh, belief and systems that everybody is free and everybody is equal regardless of birth or belief so it is for me that is the best invention humans have come up with is the idea and a system where we enable and enact freedom and equality of all but it's a super difficult thing to do and one of the things that undermine actual democracy is this is politics because of the typology because of clumping people together and not being attentive to individual difference and and assuming we know somebody because of the typology so that that places some quite considerable limits on the types of politics that art could ever enact and of course i mean it won't have escaped you that, that even in this take even if we were to charge art with a very different set of approaches towards individuals towards as you say radical difference that won't in any sense prevent any other discipline or indeed the market and capitalism from enacting politics and playing politics the same way that it always has so i'm i'm interested in in how you see this playing out how i understand this i'm i'm uh, and this is where my my new writing is at is in the final chapter about the ecological model so the reason why i am attentive to ethics and not politics is because of the ecological because of the implication of the ecological perspective and what i mean by that is that my understanding of reality understood at a specific perspective is that reality is created moment to moment um it is reality is an emergent property of the things that have been before um and how we behave in the moment so if we are attentive to what's happening right now and how we ethically engage with other people how we relate to other people and how we relate on a one to one basis with the system around us and the choices we are given then actually when we attend to that we we behave differently so politics is asking you somebody else on the street to behave differently on the assumption that i am completely right and you are completely wrong whereas i'm asking for a different view and this is a massively political thing that i'm asking but it doesn't look like it because i know reality will change when we attend to what we are doing ourselves when we are looking and focused on that relationship between me and you me and the person on the street me and the system and the choices i'm making as an artist so when we're doing that then reality changes and it changes for the better because we are attending to the right things we're attending to that relationship so reality right now all realities that's whether it's the environmental reality it is the product you know and it it maybe it's more obvious with that with because we now understand climate change like most people have enough awareness of climate change to understand that 
150 years of pouring out CO2 because of the Industrial Revolution into the sky, which we can't see, and that there are consequences to that. Now, nobody 150 years ago said about wanting to do that. But had they been attentive, had we all been attentive to CO2 output, and we have known about this since the 1960s, instead of focusing on you know, output or efficiency or whatever, or the bottom line, the money, but we were attentive to the CO2 output, we would have made different choices. So it's, it's kind of that's, that's why I'm using in the environment as a metaphor for this. It's about being attentive to what we're actually doing. And then, and then reality changes. And that's the big politics. That's the politics. Well, the book starts with a manifesto and it ends with an even more open and challenging manifesto. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, before I let you go, I want to ask you about your, your work now. You spoke so beautifully about changing your mind time and time again. So I wonder what it is that we might look forward to from you next. I'm very interested in really, really thinking through some of these concepts that I've alluded to. So I'm very interested, uh, the ecological model, to really understand what it is to be attentive to this relationship between me and my fellow human, but also me and the non-human species that surround me. Uh, so theoretically, so as an artist and a theorist, <laughs> I do both. So the theory I'm looking at writing is trying to uh, investigate further um, deepen the ecological model and my understanding of the ecological model um, and share it with people to really fully appreciate the implications of what that means um, and to kind of understand evolution better. I know that sounds weird, but if we're, because my understanding is that we are here because of what went before, which means we actually do need to understand properly the relationship um, evolution. Uh, because I'm working actually with a virologist on this, um, because as it happens, viruses teach us that uh, what we need um, for success, as in, um, I don't mean, you know, monetary success, I mean, as a species, is diversity and creativity. And the viruses have taught us that. Uh, artistically, um, as it happens, um, since COVID, I actually returned to my originating medium, which was paint. I was trained as a painter back in the late 1980s. Um, and I, I am using paint as a way of exploring exactly this view. So I'm taking a bird's eye view, uh, like a mapping view, uh, to understand this relationship between nature, self, perspective. So the, the bird's eye view and the mapping perspective, um, which I have appreciated from much more profoundly understanding traditional Aboriginal art, what that does is it upends the Renaissance view, which, and what I mean by that is you automatically get the relationship between humans and the landscape and the human human and human and human and non-human species automatically in any kind of map or bird's eye view. Whereas the Renaissance window view on the world looks at individuals decontextualized from anything else beyond the frame. So I'm very interested in actually in exploring this other way of seeing and understanding in order to explore interrelationality. Well, if your previous changes of frame have been anything to go by, then I look forward to following on this project. Um, but for now, I'd like to thoroughly recommend Between Discipline and a Hard Place to anyone who has ever called themselves an artist. And I certainly look forward to citing you numerous times in my PhD thesis. For now, thank you very much for joining me and sharing your work with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, thank you so much for your questions. And it's been great. Thank you. 
Between Discipline and a Hard Place, The Value of Contemporary Art is published by Bloomsbury. I'm Pierre Delancey and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time.